This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The book of Philippians is one of the smaller books in the New Testament, and it sometimes gets overlooked in favor of Romans or the Revelation. But it is God's inspired and holy word, and he gave it to us for a reason. Here to help us think through this powerful little epistle is Dr. Dennis Johnson, professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Dennis is an experienced pastor and teacher. He's taught at Westminster since 1982. He's the author of commentaries on Acts and the Revelation, and his latest commentary is on Paul epistle to the Philippians in the Reformed Expository Commentary Series. This faculty title and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you very much, Scott. Well, let's get oriented. First of all, before we even get to Philippians, just so the listener has a background in which to put this epistle, tell us a little bit about Paul's background and his life so that we can situate this book properly. Paul was born at a very early age. As we know, Paul was born into a Jewish family. He will tell us in Philippians 3 that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, perhaps named for the first king of Israel who came from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the tribes that stayed loyal to the house of David long-term after the division of the kingdom between north and south. His uh, family taught him Hebrew, even though he grew up in a dispersion city in Tarsus. He was a member of the party of the Pharisees, and of course, as we know from the book of Acts, Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus when he was intent on persecuting and arresting and, if possible, putting Christians to death, Christ laid hold of him. Paul says in Philippians 3 that he was seized or laid hold of by Christ. And from that point on, the persecutor had become the propagator of the Christian faith by the sovereign grace of Christ. That's the the short story. From Antioch in Syria, Paul and Barnabas were sent out on a first missionary journey into what is now Turkey, Asia Minor. They returned, subsequently were sent out on a second journey where they passed through those Turkish Asian cities. And uh, then Paul was called in a vision to go across into Macedonia, across the Aegean Sea. And the first city that he and now his new teammate Silas reached was Philippi, or at least as we read in Luke's account in Acts chapter 16, a church planted there through the preaching of Paul and Silas in that second missionary journey. That's exactly what we needed. So when was Philippians written? And of course, it was written by Paul, but where is it, say, in the chronology of Paul's epistles? Well, it was written, as we know, from his imprisonment. There's some dispute about where he was imprisoned, but by far the majority consensus, and what I believe is that it was written from his Roman imprisonment when he was awaiting Caesar's verdict on his appeal. So that would put it in the early 60s, writing around the same time that he would have written the epistle to the Ephesians and to the Colossians and to Philemon, those prison epistles all from around that period of time. So these are late in his life. Relatively late, yes, although I believe that he also was released from that imprisonment as he expected to be, from what we read in Philippians, had a further ministry from which, while he was free, he wrote First Timothy and Titus, and then Second Timothy, probably the last of his epistles, from a second imprisonment where, at that point, he expected a fairly soon and swift martyrdom. Which is what happened, right? It is what happened, right. And where did he die? In Rome. 
How? By being beheaded, according to early church tradition. I think that's probably right. We don't have any reason to question that. So he's a martyr for the gospel. He is a convert from Judaism. His name is originally Saul, becomes Paul upon his conversion. He met the ascended Lord Jesus. Probably his Hebrew name was Saul. We read the transition to the name Paul in the book of Acts as his ministry begins to extend out into the Gentile world. And since he was born a Roman citizen, I think the best scholarship suggests that that Latin name, Paul, had been his from birth and yet not used in the book of Acts until he begins to take on that ministry out among the Gentiles. And he has this ministry now, or this congregation. Tell us a little bit about this congregation in Philippi. It's an interesting congregation. As I remember, it's the first city that Paul and his teammates, whether Barnabas on the first trip or Silas on the second, reach where there is no evidence of a synagogue in the city. Their priority was always to go first to the synagogue where Jews and Gentile God-fearers and proselytes would gather. In Philippi, they find no synagogue, and that's confirmed from what we know of archaeology. First evidence of a Jewish synagogue in Philippi is late, late second century. And so they look for a place where they might find worshipers of the true and living God, the God of Israel, and they go outside the city gate to a place by the river where they knew somehow there would be a place of prayer, and they meet a group of women. Lydia is the prominent one who's named in Acts 16, who comes to faith there. That's important because when you read Philippians, unlike most of Paul's letters, you never have Paul introducing a direct quotation from the Old Testament. He's not assuming that he can simply cite a passage of Scripture. Now, he alludes to passages from the Old Testament Scriptures, but he doesn't build his case in quite that way. Some other interesting things about Philippi, Paul got there, and Silas, and Timothy, along with them, is that this is a city that was, as Luke tells us in Acts, a Roman colony, which meant that this was a city whose citizens had full privileges as though they were citizens of the capital of the empire, the city of Rome itself. That was unusual. Not every city had that privilege. And of course, not every resident in Philippi had the privilege of citizenship. But it did mean that they had special rights, exemption from taxation. Wouldn't that be great if citizens got exemption from taxation in the U.S.? (laughs) But they were exempted from taxation. And they had right of due process in the Roman laws. And Paul uses a couple of key words for citizenship in this letter that he uses nowhere else because he's building on that background that Philippians, whether they were full citizens of Rome or not, would still be aware of just from living in that city. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Do you think that this congregation was a mixed, ethnically mixed congregation, predominantly Gentile or Jewish? How do you think of it? I think predominantly Gentile. Philippi had no synagogue presumably because they didn't have a large enough Jewish community. The Mishnah says you need at least 10 men with the leisure to read Torah to form a synagogue, and they apparently didn't have that quorum. And so it was a predominantly, I think, Gentile. Lydia herself is called a fearer of God, which means that she was from a Gentile background, but now worshiping the God of Israel. Probably other, from what we can reconstruct from Acts 16, other founding members of the church uh, were the jailer and his family, who was converted uh, the night that Paul and Silas were were singing praises and God shook the earth. Maybe the slave girl who had had the demon cast out of her as well, but all that we see indicates probably that this is a Gentile background church, predominantly at least. 
So this is a somewhat inauspicious beginning. This isn't the usual pattern. There's no synagogue. He finds a small group of people at apparently a local place of prayer that was known. Gentile God-fearers, maybe we can fill that in a little bit more about what that means to be a Gentile God-fearer, and converts to the faith. But this isn't a big, glorious, splashy, attention-grabbing inauguration of a congregation. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. That's very interesting, because when we think of the New Testament sometimes, we think of the extraordinary. We think of Pentecost or other episodes, or maybe we think of the church in Corinth, which was extraordinary in other ways, whether through the use of spirit-given gifts or maybe particular outstanding sins and corruption and divisions. Or we think of the Roman congregation, which receives a fair bit of attention in the New Testament. And so here, uh, this is kind of a different congregation that doesn't maybe come immediately to our attention as one of those places where the Spirit is doing remarkable things. I think you're right. And I think that makes it even more striking that this, as you hear throughout the letter, this is a congregation who are just very, very dear to the Apostle Paul's heart. And he loved all of his congregations, just as we love all of our children. But as perhaps parents know, some children are easier to love than others. (laughs) No. no. Yes, yes, true, true. And the church at Philippi was easier to love than, uh, say, the churches in Galatia, for whom Paul was often distraught, at least as he wrote that letter letter. And other churches, Corinth, of course, seems semi-combative to the apostle who was their father in the faith. And when he writes to the Philippians, it's with great affection. My joy, my crown, I yearn for you. I long for you. I love you. There's that warmth of affection. And they had shown it back to Paul, among other things, through their generosity. One of the occasions of the letter, if I can jump into that, is that he's thanking them for a special donation that they had sent. They probably had sent it overland across northern Macedonia and then by sea across the Adriatic Sea. And one of their own, Epaphroditus, had carried it to relieve some of his expenses because he was actually having to pay for his own imprisonment in Rome, as we read at the end of Acts. And this was not the first time they had been generous to support his ministry, to free him up as he's planting the gospel in new churches. They did the same thing in Corinth. They were in the north when Paul came to the south to Corinth. They brought and sent gifts to him with great love and affection and out of great sacrifice, because as Paul described, the churches in the north, Macedonia, both that's Philippi and Thessalonica, these are churches that are not wealthy. Corinth is probably a more prosperous church in the south, but these are poor churches, and they are eager to give for the support of the apostle, and they're also, as we learn from other letters, eager to give for the relief of Jewish Christians in Judea in the famine time that he refers to in other letters. So these are Christians who had received much grace and in turn had been very gracious with others. Sometimes we think about the New Testament being so about the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, and we see him operating immediately sometimes, or through the preaching of the gospel, but we see these extraordinary things. We forget that there was an ordinary Christian life that occurred in the New Testament, and God used this congregation in Philippi to sustain the apostolic ministry through financial gifts, which is not something we tend to think about. Precisely, exactly. And Paul saw and emphasized the theological significance, the spiritual significance of their gifts by describing their contributions in the language of Old Testament 
sacrifice, a sweet savor sacrifice, a, and a pleasing aroma sacrifice. So he says, this is really your offering to God in the gifts you're giving, you have given and are giving to me so that I can be involved in getting the gospel out to others. It's all worship. Their gifts are worship to the Lord. These are metaphorical offerings, right? Not right. literal offerings, and they're not turning away God's wrath through what they're doing, but invoking these Old Testament images. When we come back after this break, I want to dive in and sort of work through some key places in this epistle to the Philippians and look at what might be some of the other major themes and some of the challenges that the congregation was facing. And particularly, there's some very interesting language, and we'll get there in a minute in chapter three about one of the challenges they're facing, and we'll do that right after this. You're called to holy living, but how to grow in holiness. Watch Westminster Seminary, California's Transforming Grace Conference, January 17 and 18, 2014, via live streaming video on your computer or mobile device. Join Mike Horton, W. Robert Godfrey, and others to learn how the same grace that saves you also transforms you. Go to wscal.edu slash conference 2014, wscal.edu slash conference 2014. As a church historian, I have always believed that the confessions of the Reformed churches are the best summary of biblical teaching, and I continue to believe that, and I think our seminary is strongly committed to that. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. We are increasingly in an evangelical world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and the wisdom of the fathers, the best students of Scripture in the history of the church, are encapsulated for us in the confessions, and we need to preserve that and know that and enthusiastically serve with a commitment to that. And I think it's a commitment that is more needed in our time than it's ever been needed. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. When we started, you described, Dennis, the epistle as a very personal and intimate sort of thing. And as part of that, the apostle gives this congregation a lot of news about what's going on, what's happening with him. Explain that a little bit. One of the purposes, as we talked about earlier, of this letter is to say thank you for the gift, and he reserves that for the end. But another purpose clearly is that he knows how much they care for him and want to know how he is doing now as he is under house arrest in Rome. And so he spends some time talking about that, but he doesn't talk about the situation, the circumstances, really, in terms of the chains and the imprisonment. His focus is much more on how that's affecting the advance of the gospel, that is letting the word out among the Praetorian Guard, that's the Imperial Guard, Caesar's select troops, that his chains are for Christ, that others in Rome who have freedom of movement are preaching Christ in places where Paul cannot go. And he's doing that, I think, not just to reassure them that things are okay for him. And even as he transitions later on to the prospects that before him in terms of Caesar's decision, whether it'll be execution, which Paul says for me personally would be far better, or exoneration, release, and more ministry to you, that's what you need. Paul comes to the conclusion that's probably what the Lord has in store. But in all of that, he's not just reassuring them. He's really showing in his own heart a pattern for how they should view their own sufferings for Christ. Because as he finishes up his discussion of his own situation in 126 and transitions to their situation, he begins to talk immediately about the fact that they have opponents 
that it has been given to the Philippians, not only to believe in Jesus' name, but also to suffer for his sake, and they share in the kinds of sufferings that Paul has experienced. So he's he's setting a pattern for them, for how the gospel changes our hearts and our desires and our assessment of our situation, changes our desires so that in response to Christ's grace, we want to be instruments of Christ's grace in others' lives. For Paul, it's all about the mission. It's all about the advance of the gospel. And it's interesting that you characterized his suffering relative not to himself. As you say, for him, it would be better to go to be with the Lord, but he didn't want them to lose heart and to be discouraged that just because he was in prison, somehow the gospel itself was imprisoned. And it's so interesting how, as you say, he goes to suffering. This is a theme, a prominent theme in the New Testament, an important theme, but it's not a theme that maybe we as Americans gravitate to. Can you elaborate a little bit more about the importance of suffering as a theme in Philippians and maybe in Paul's broader writing? Let me start with a summary statement that Luke gives of Paul's and Barnabas's encouragement to the churches that were planted during the first missionary journey. In Acts 14, Luke says that they encouraged the believers in all of those towns, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Antioch. They encouraged them by saying, through many sufferings, we must enter the kingdom of God. That was encouragement. Don't be surprised at this. This is what the Christian life entails in the present world. Paul writes to Timothy, all who would live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It may be more intense, more overt, more violent, and sometimes in places. It may be more subtle in other times and places, but believers should anticipate this. And that, as Paul says, is really an implication, I would say, of our union with Christ. Philippians 3, Paul talks about readiness, eagerness to share in the sufferings of Christ, because he also knows that by God's grace he will share in the resurrection power of Christ. That's something we need to hear, absolutely. Something we don't want to hear, but if we don't listen to it carefully, then when suffering, especially opposition for the gospel, when it comes into our lives, we'll be thrown for a loop. We won't be prepared as the apostles and as Jesus himself in the scriptures tell us to be prepared and expect this. This is exactly opposite to the prosperity gospel that so many people seem to find attractive. There are famous, world-famous, televised preachers marketing Christianity as a path to financial prosperity and personal success. Do you find any of that in the Apostle Paul? No. No, he's a theologian of the cross, isn't he? He is, absolutely. A theologian of suffering. I think if you ask Paul which is more likely to be an indicator of God's favor, if you will, it's more likely going to be suffering than prosperity. That's absolutely true. And when he talks finances in his letters, especially I think of 2 Corinthians, where he's urging the, as I said, more affluent Southern Corinthian church in Achaia to step up to the plate in a generous offering for needy Christians. Christians in Judea, he points out that the churches up north, Macedonia, that is Philippi and Thessalonica, have shown incredible wealth, not in dollars, but in the riches of the way God's grace has given them an eagerness to serve other believers. And that's a different kind of wealth. It's a far more profound and important form of wealth of heart in gratitude for the gospel. To drive that point home, then, he turns in chapter 2 to a king who gave up his royal 
prerogatives. And you describe this section, particularly Philippians 2, 5 through 8, as the king who stooped to conquer. Help us connect those two things. Yes, it's interesting how he gets into that, which is perhaps one of the most famous passages and important passages on the person and the career of the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of his eternal divinity, of his incarnation, of his humbling himself even to the death of the cross, and then of his exaltation. He gets into that whole majestic description of our Savior as a way of addressing an issue in the Philippian church. He loved this church dearly, but it was not a flawless church. And in the first several verses of what we now call chapter 2, he has had to urge them to not relate to one another out of self-interest, rivalry, rather to be concerned for others. And he really clinches all of that by showing them that their very lives depend upon condescension, the willing, self-giving, self-denying humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not consider only his own things and his own concerns or his own comfort, but rather poured himself out in death for the sake of his people in sheer love. This also connects to their setting and their broader culture as citizens in a Roman colony. Coming out of that background, they would have been minded to think about royalty in a certain way, power in a certain way, glory in a certain way. And so Paul, in a sense, seizes on those assumptions that they would have had and says, well, let me tell you about a king who, though in his being was equal to God, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He set that aside, not his being, but his royal prerogatives. Help us connect that with their setting and with the challenges they would have had to think that way. It would be well known and widely accepted in any Roman setting. And Philippi was proud of being a Roman city, that those who have power and wealth use it for their personal reputation, fame, aggrandizement, whatever, to gather a group of admirers and dependents around them to serve them. Of course, Jesus made a similar observation in teaching his disciples how upside down leadership is in his kingdom in Mark 10. He said, among the Gentiles, those who have the power are those who demand to be served by others. But I, the Son of Man, have come not to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life a ransom for many. That encapsulated statement of Jesus' mission in Mark 10:45 is a wonderful commentary on this section of Philippians, because it really shows how utterly countercultural is Christ's definition of his own kingship, as son of man, that exalted one foreseen in Daniel 7, and therefore the role of leaders in his church now called to be servants of others. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And he poured himself out. What does that mean, poured himself out? There's been a lot of discussion about that for centuries, millennia. How do you understand that language of pouring himself out and then maybe connect that with what comes after it, the exaltation? There has been a lot of debate, and we obviously can't chat about all of that here. Certainly those approaches to the person of Christ that suggest that he somehow poured out his divinity and his powers in order to become a man contradict what we see in the Gospels, contradict what we see in the whole New Testament. He was and always continued to be fully, eternally, the Son of God, as he took to himself a true, unfallen, but finite human nature, body, soul, mind, a whole human 
nature. And there's mystery there. We can't explain that. He poured himself out as an interesting expression. And one of your teachers and mine, Dr. Robert Strimple, our first president here, I think had the right approach to it in an article that he published years ago when he sees here an allusion, a reference to Isaiah 53, in which we read that the servant of the Lord poured out his life for many. It really is a reference to sacrificial suffering in substitution for others. And so the aim of the incarnation, Christ taking his human nature, is ultimately the cross, his going to the point where having taken that human nature, he becomes obedient to death. And as Paul then emphasizes, not just any death, but that shameful, violent death of the cross under the wrath of God and rejected by men. Which these, as Roman citizens, would have found maybe particularly galling, the notion of crucifixion, because this is something that's done to other people. It's done to the worst, to the lowest. And this is their Savior. This is their pattern. God the Son took on our flesh and went to a cross. If it's about pouring out his divinity, then the analogy with the Philippians is destroyed. We can't get rid of our humanity. Right, right, exactly. So that understanding, it's called the kenosis view, really ruins the message that Paul's trying to communicate here in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, you uh, speak of rags and robes. What's the challenge there that on which Paul is reflecting there when he warns about the dogs? He uses some very strong language again to warn these Roman colonists and Christians about a particular threat. Yeah, he gives three names to these false teachers that he's warning them against. He calls them the dogs, he calls them the evildoers, he calls them the mutilation. And each of those three terms would be shocking to these false teachers because they saw themselves as the insiders. Dogs were used in Judaism to describe those who were outsiders, who were polluted. We think of some cute lap dogs today, but typically in the ancient world, this word dog would refer to sort of street mongrels who would eat defiled meat and therefore be defiled. And that's what the Jewish people sometimes applied to the Gentiles. And they would present a threat, right? So you're out for a walk, you turn around, you you see a pack of, of dogs that you don't know that seem like they're up to no good. This is the imagery. This is a threat. These people are dangerous. Right. Dangerous and defiling as well. Evildoers, obviously, these teachers that Paul's going to address see themselves as the doers of good, keepers of the law. And then the last word, mutilation, is a variant on the term that we find translated in the New Testament as circumcision. And what Paul is doing there, because he goes on in the next couple of verses to say we are the real circumcision, is he's saying when they use that physical right of circumcision as the one and only entryway into the new people of God. They are completely abusing the significance of that sign given to Abraham and have turned it into the equivalent of pagan self-mutilation, such as the prophets of Baal committed. The same term is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the prophets of Baal slashing themselves to try to get him to bring fire down from heaven at Mount Carmel. So he's really using strong, insulting terms to indicate that this teaching is defiling, dangerous, despicable to God. And then he goes on clearly in what he says thereafter to say what they were advocating is precisely what I used to trust in myself. If anyone else thinks he can boast in credentials in the flesh, that is, in my own efforts, I can boast more. And then he goes through his resume of all the achievements, all the qualifications that he had within Judaism from birth to being 
being circumcised on the right day, to keeping of the law, to showing his zeal as a persecutor of the church. He said, that's what I used to boast in. But now I realize that all that I once thought was gain, it's all loss. In fact, it's all repugnant, rubbish, garbage, despicable, defiling. What I want, what I need, is a righteousness that's not of my own making, but it's the righteousness of God that comes in Christ and comes by faith in Christ. So there's Paul's answer. He's in effect saying to these predominantly Gentile believers, I know they're telling you, Judaizers, probably similar to those that had threatened the Galatian churches uh, just a few years earlier, I know they're telling you that in order to get into God's closest circle, you need circumcision, you need all the laws, you need all that obedient observance of the law in every way, shape, and form. Let me tell you, I've gone as far as you can go on that road, and it is absolutely a dead end for any of us who are fallen children of Adam. But there is another road. There's the road of resting and trusting and knowing and being found in Christ, having his righteousness robe us. I went from rags to robes from two passages, as you know, in Isaiah, where Isaiah at one point says, all our righteous deeds are as defiling and disgusting rags. But Isaiah also says that God is clothing his people with a robe of righteousness, which is his gift, not our achievement. And even though Paul doesn't directly allude to those two texts in Isaiah, it just seemed to capture so well his description of what he used to trust in, how repugnant he now knows it is, and now his resting in the righteousness of Christ. And where the instrument used to be our doing now, according to 3.9, the instrument of receiving all that Christ did for us is faith. Right? He makes that very clear, through faith in Christ, not Christ's faith. No, not Christ's faith as though it were faithfulness, although Jesus was absolutely faithful, but it's our faith that is our trust, which is the instrument by which God links us to Christ's perfect righteousness that is credited to us. And according to Paul, it's in the nature of faith to look away from itself and to look to someone or something else. And the proper object of faith for acceptance with God is Jesus, who is the one who emptied himself out and obeyed and died all the way to the cross and was buried, raised on the third day, and exalted and now at the right hand of the Father. And that leads us to the last part of the epistle, where Paul begins to press home some of the themes he's been pursuing through the book. And particularly, I want to think about his, we would say today, calling out of a couple of people, a couple of presumably ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, and you title this section, Stand Together. What does Paul say are the implications of having this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus? How does that work out in our life as Christians together? Well, he applies it in this very specific situation to these two sisters. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He had just said to the whole church, stand firm in the Lord, agree in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, true companion, we're not quite sure who that is, perhaps one of the key elders and pastors of the church, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. He's picking up some language from the first chapter and the beginning of the second chapter where he's urged them in the face of opponents to stand side by side, to contend for the gospel with one mind, with one heart. And now he's having touched on that rather gently and gingerly at the end of the first chapter, beginning of the second. Now he comes down and says, now there are two sisters here whom I value greatly. They've been my co-workers in... Which is no small thing, right? This is a fairly exalted title in list of titles that Paul uses. Absolutely. But something 
has divided them. So he needs to exhort them to agree, to come to one mind in the Lord. And as I've read this over the years, I thought, how embarrassing for them. In fact, I've taught Bible studies where I've said, can you imagine the look on these two women's faces when their names are read with this exhortation? Subsequently, as in my study, it's come to light that typically when Paul really wants to insult somebody, he will not call their name. He will simply refer to them in very generic terms. And so I've come to have a different view. I still would be personally embarrassed, but in a certain sense, he's honoring them by saying, I want to talk to each of you sisters. I'm going to call you by name. I'm just appealing to you and treat as a very, very gentle term to come together, to be united. And so he is even honoring them as he needs to correct them. And it's a beautiful, gentle, pastoral correction. But again, because he's picking up the language that he had used earlier, he's really appealing to the foundation of the gospel. In view of the fact that the one who is in very nature God humbled himself, took human nature, poured himself out in sacrifice for you, is exalted now as Lord over all, in view of the fact that you are in him, that amazing grace he's shown you must now break down any wall of hurt feelings or wounded pride, whatever it was that was standing between these two sisters, and you must be one because you are one in Christ Jesus. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.